we live in Australia, and so we're all familiar, I hope, with uh, bushfires. Uh, they're terrible things. They rage out of control, and they destroy large amounts of property, uh, forests, houses, often killing animals and even people. Have you seen the aftermath of a bushfire anywhere? Yeah, not you've seen. Yeah, very good. But you know, a bushfire, even though they they become very large, they don't start big. They start small. Um, it starts with a small fire. Some, most of them are accidental. Uh, some are by a lightning strike or an electrical fault. But some bushfires are lit deliberately by us arsonists. Some people walk out of their house one day and decide to start a fire, a little fire that will grow and end up destroying uh, property and possibly lives. James tells us that our tongues are like a bushfire. Uh, we're all arsonists, he says. We have a tendency to light fires everywhere we go. James 3, 5-6 says, Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. Just like a little fire. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. That's some strong words. But I just want to, as by way of introduction into our topic, I just want to notice one thing from this passage, and that is that your little tongue boasts great things. <laughs> Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Do you get taught that as a kid? It's got to be one of the biggest lies we tell kids. It's, just, it's totally false. Um, perhaps if, uh, well, kids, kids I think know this. Kids hear it when they come to their parents or to teachers and they say, hey, so-and-so just said something mean about me and hurt me. And the teacher or parent says, well, sticks and stones will break your bones and words never hurt you. And they go, no, I just told you it did hurt me. <laughs> you know, maybe a smart kid would say, no, it should say sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will break my heart. Words will break my relationships. Words will destroy trust. That is certainly more in line with what James says, isn't it? Even so, the tongue is a little member, but, great, but boasts great things. See what a great forest a little fire kindles. We need to pay close attention to our words because they are powerful things. How we use our tongues is serious business, and, and that matters in every relationship that we have. But how much more so in our marriages? Marriage is the most intimate relationship you will have. It's the most enduring relationship you will have. It's the relationship where you know someone the most, where you're perhaps most free with your tongue. It's the relationship where you can do the most damage with your tongue. And you'll have the most opportunities to do that damage. You talk a lot in your marriages, I hope. Um, and so there's lots of potential there. And when I think about my marriage, and I asked a couple of people this before doing this talk, and they sort of agreed, I think most of my problems in my marriage are due to communication, or have as part of that those problems, communication as part of it or at the root of it. So, now that we have established that we should care about how we speak, 
Um, I want to look at 1 Peter 3, 8 to 12 with you and draw out six principles from it that will help us in our communication. And 1 Peter, as Rob mentioned, is written to a group of Christians who are suffering and they're going to be going great persecution. They're in a high pressure, high stress, high risk environment. And Peter's seeking to encourage them to live as Christians through this difficulty. Now, so what advice would you give someone who's in a high stress environment? Like that's, that's what Peter's trying to do. These days, most of the advice that you, you'll find is around taking time for yourself and making sure that you look after number one. Uh, I googled how to manage stress and every piece of advice I could find was about thinking more about yourself. Um, I found advice like eliminate sources of stress, get rid of it, or go easy on yourself, or make time for fun and relaxation. In contrast, Peter's main themes as you work through the book of 1 Peter are, four things, submit yourself to God and the authorities God's placed in your life, even if they're the ones causing you trouble. That's what Rob talked about. To love others, particularly, Peter urges us to love fellow believers. Three, look forward to the hope that we have in Jesus, Rob mentioned that. And four, watch your tongue. It's a predominant thing throughout the book. If you go through the book and underline every bit where you see him talking about something you say, you'll find that it pops up a lot. Why is that? Why does Peter put these four things out there? Well, I think... That when you consider what tends to happen when heat and pressure come on us, these four things make a lot of sense. If you're in a group setting and some hardship comes along, the temptation is for all hell to break loose. Without the grace of God, our natural tendency is to stop trusting in, our, in the authorities over us, to turn to thinking only about ourselves and not loving others, to be consumed with the immediate moment and not to think about the future. And all of this results in us turning on our fellow group members and speaking harshly to each other. Jay Adams suggests that this is a serious problem in the church today. He says, when Christians should be marching side by side through this world, taking men captive for Jesus Christ, they are acting instead like an army that has been routed and scattered and whose troops in their confusion have begun fighting amongst themselves. So, when Peter turns in, in chapter 3, verse 8, and says, finally, he's coming at the end of a list of instructions of how to live in these high-pressure situations, and um, he gives us concluding remarks about how, how you're to think and how you're to behave in all of your uh, life in this, these high-pressure environments. And I'd like to consider these principles, I think they do relate to communication as we'll see, but I'd like to consider them particularly from the perspective of communication in marriage. Six principles. Unity, sympathy, love, blessing, truth, and peace. Unity, sympathy, love, blessing, truth, and peace. So firstly, Peter says, be united in thought. Look at verse 8 with me. Verse 8, by the way, I think is a bit of, it's like a cascading thing. It's got five words, literally just single words in the original. Be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous. 
the, la the first and the last relate to each other, the second and the third relate to each other, and uh, sorry, the second and the fourth relate to each other, and the middle one stands by itself. So be united in thought, well that's related to be of one mind, and it's also related to be courteous, which in your better translation is be humble or be of low mind. In our marriages we are to seek to be of one mind and of a humble mind. We are to seek unity in thought. To effectively face the troubles of life and be ready to march side by side through this world, as James put it, with a common goal and mission, we must be on the same page, mustn't we? If we're to be of one mind with our spouse, then we must communicate a lot. We have to talk so that our minds can be united. This is why armies, for instance, spend so much time communicating mission plans and going over them again and again. It's so that everyone in the platoon is of the same mind when the bullets start flying. They know what they're going to do because they've already talked about it. They know what the goal is and the objective is. They've already talked about it. They've gone over it again and again. They've talked about specific situations. And so they're of one mind. And they can work side by side to achieve that mission. And so what about us? So are you and your spouse on the same page? Are you of one mind? Do you have unity of thought? If not, I suspect the cause is one of the following three problems. First is insufficient communication. Now our model in all things marriage is Jesus Christ. If we want to know how to be on the same page as our spouse, we need to look at how Jesus does it. How does he get the church on the same page as him? When we look at Jesus, we see that he speaks. He's a communicating God. He speaks directly to us and he tells us all we need to know about him, about his plans, about his desires and about his standards. He desires to have regular conversation with us. We see the psalmist, for instance, thinking about and reading God's Word multiple times a day. Praying to God multiple times a day. That God wants to have a situation where His church and He are communicating frequently. We hear God speak when we come to church every week, when we go to Bible studies and every time we read the Bible. And as we hear from Him and engage with Him in covenantal conversation... We grow in Christ's likeness. What does that mean? Well, we grow to have the mind of Christ. We grow to understand how He thinks and what His goals are and what His plans are. And we are conformed to His image. The point is, we need to talk regularly with our spouse. Two people who do not talk about much will never grow closer together. They will only drift further apart. And we need to speak to our spouse as a friend, as a trusted confidant as someone who we want to bear our heart to. They need to know your mind if, they are, if you are to be of one mind. Paul says he has this sort of conversation with the Corinthians. He says, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our hearts are wide open. Isn't that an amazing phrase? Calvin comments on that verse and he says, Paul here says nothing but what we everyday experience. For when we have to do with friends, 
when we deal with our friends, he's saying, our heart is enlarged and all our feelings are laid open. There is nothing that is hid, nothing shut, nay more. The whole mind leaps and exalts to unfold itself openly to view. Now we, I think, in our society have a terrible view of friendship and really struggle with friendships. Calvin clearly didn't. This is the sort of conversation, this is the sort of friendship we want to cultivate in our marriages. The whole mind leaping and exalting to unfold itself openly to view. This sort of conversation will lead to a unity of mind. So that's one thing, insufficient communication. Another thing might be disagreements. A difficulty in becoming of one mind is that we will all inevitably disagree at some point. This is where the principle of having a humble mind comes in. This is why I think the be courteous or be humble of mind at the end of verse 8 is related to being of one mind. In order to be united through deep conversation, we must approach things with a humble mind. We are weak and sinful and limited. We don't know everything and we can be wrong. And, this is the, this is the real puncher, I think, not everything that I think is super important is actually super important. The colour of the linen on our bed might not be worth fighting about, for instance. So we need to have a humble mind that's willing to engage with a different point of view, willing to even die to our own point of view. It's always good as Christians to look for as many opportunities as possible to die to ourselves. Whenever we see a disagreement as we are opening our, our minds to each other and our hearts to each other, and we come to a point of disagreement that's not a moral issue, it's good to give up. And it's even better to seek to outdo one another in giving up. You know, all it takes is one humble mind and a large percentage of fights just disappear. But there are some things that are worth fighting for and about, where the Bible speaks. And that brings us to the last but most fundamental principle of being of one mind, which is we are to unite around something. We are to unite around Christ. There's not much to say about this, except for the, the best way for two soldiers to be of one mind is for them to follow the same captain. And the same is true for us. The best way for us to grow in one-mindedness in our marriage is to follow Christ together. Seek to build our plans and our goals and all the details of our life around what Jesus says. And if we do that, we will find that we grow closer and closer together. So that's point one is being of one mind. Second thing is being of sympathetic in feelings. In verse 8, again, remember 2 and 4 are related, I think. Be of one mind, having compassion for one another. And then number 4 is be tender-hearted. One of our tendencies as sinners is to be selfish in our thinking. We can become so absorbed, absorbed in our own lives that all the difficulties that we go through we see as hard and challenging, but we don't even notice that other people are suffering as well. I'm sure you've met someone, possibly it's yourself, who has every excuse for their own sin, but when it comes to other people's sins, there can't possibly be any excuse or any reason or any extenuating circumstances. 
Perhaps I lie to my wife and I work on downplaying it because I was tired and stressed at the time. You've got to be understanding of me. It was hard. And yet if my wife starts insulting me, I come down on her like a ton of bricks because clearly she's no, she knows better. You have to be crazy to think that that's reasonable. On both a sin level and on a general struggles in life, just the daily toil of life, we're really good at seeing our own situation and having self-sympathy, but we are generally bad at understanding what others might be going through. This leads to serious breakdowns in communication because if I can never understand where my wife is coming from, she will be less and less likely to come and tell me her struggles. Hebrews 4, 15-16 is interesting in this regard because the writer of Hebrews connects the idea of sympathy to the idea of communication. Hebrews 4, 15-16 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathise with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, Jesus humbled himself and took on flesh, in part, certainly to pay for our sins, but he also did it in part so that he would be the perfect high priest who would understand the weakness of his people, not his own weaknesses, but their weaknesses. He came to earth so that he knows what it's like to suffer and to be tempted. He knows what it's like to be tempted when you're hungry or tired. He knows what it's like to have a huge pile of responsibilities mounting up before you with limited time. Think of all the different people Jesus had to help in the short time of three years that he ministered for. He knows what it's like to have people lie about you and accuse you of wrong. Sometimes we think that because Jesus never sinned, he can't possibly actually understand what we're going through. But the opposite is actually the case. If you think about temptation as a marathon, the temptation to sin comes on you and often increases as long as you resist. We often fall and give in around the one or two kilometer mark. Maybe that's so, no? We might, by God's grace, hold out for a time, but mostly we will eventually fall. Jesus got to that distance and kept going. And then he got to the next, he, he kept going the whole way. He knows what it's like to be tempted as far as you possibly can be. And so his heart is sympathetic to us in our suffering and our struggles. But the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus' understanding of what you're experiencing should be a motivator for us to come and talk to him. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace so that we might find help in times of need. We are to model this sort of sympathy to our spouse. This is why Peter tells us to have compassion on one another and to be tender-hearted. Other translations use the words sympathetic and kind-hearted. The first word literally means fellow feeling. You're to, you're to feel with them. You're to seek to understand what they're going through. And the second refers to your guts, to the seat of your emotions. You're to have tender, soft, warm, kind, compassionate feelings towards one another. 
Here's a, an example of what this looks like from Martin Luther. He was away on a trip and heard that his wife Katie was worrying about him. So he wrote this to her. I thank you very kindly for your great worry which robs you of sleep. Since the day that you started to worry about me, the fire in my quarters tried to devour me. And yesterday, no doubt because of the strength of your worries, a stone almost fell on my head and nearly squashed me as in a mousetrap. I worry that if you do not stop worrying, the earth will finally swallow us up and all the elements will chase us. Pray and let God worry. Now, they had a great sense of humour. You read their letters, they're hilarious. But underneath the jokes, you can see that Martin was aware that Katie was worrying. He cared that Katie was worrying. He talked to her about her worry and he tried to encourage her to a, God, a, a godly way of dealing with that worry. Pray, let God worry. He was in tune with his wife's feelings. He dealt with her in a sympathetic way. Thirdly, be rich in love. In verse 8, in the middle of the verse, he says, Finally, all of you love as brothers. This, I think, is at the heart of all that we've been talking about. Remember, if you only remember one thing from this whole talk, remember this thing. We must view each other as being on the same team. This is what brotherly love is all about. That's the, the word that's used, this brotherly love. There's lots of different types of love in the Bible, four different types, but this one is brotherly love. It's the bond between family members. We love our family because we are inseparably bound by blood. That's why we have brotherly love for, each, for our siblings. And that is how Christians ought to view each other in general. We are inseparably bound by blood. By which blood? The blood of Jesus Christ. We are in the same spiritual family. How much more so than a married Christian couple? We are on the same team. We are not each other's enemies. If you go and watch a sports team play, let's say you watch Australia play India in cricket, everyone knows that all the Australians are on the same team, right? It goes without saying, except it doesn't go without saying. If you watch, you watch a sports team play, the sports team constantly reinforces their mutual support for one another. They encourage their fellow team member when they need encouragement. They cheer for them when they do something good. They hug and they high five. They help them get back on track when they fall. My point is that our love in our marriages should be like that. Too often we don't love like we should. We don't even have the brotherly love that we should. But even more often, we think that the love goes without saying. We don't speak of our love and support and care for one another. This is totally contrary to Jesus and his love for his bride. Jesus declares his love for his bride. These declarations are not dependent on the bride being lovely. Jesus rejoices in an unlovely bride, verbally and publicly. We'll look at that more in the next point a little bit, but consider for the moment um, some more letters. Uh, this one's from Pastor Philip Doddridge, who lived 
from 1702 to 1751, and his letter to his wife, Mercy. He writes, If you were in a cottage in the wilderness, I had much rather, so far as this dear self of mine is concerned, be with you than with the brightest, most polite, or most learned circle. And indeed, the very reading of your letters is more to me than any other company or entertainment which books or friends can here afford. He's verbalising his love and his affection towards her. Or Martin Lloyd-Jones, that great sort of doctorish preacher, listen to what he says to his wife, Bethan. During the last year, I had come to believe that it was not possible for a man to love his wife more than I loved you. And yet I see... There is no end to love. I am quite certain there is no lover anywhere writing to his girl who is quite as mad about her as I am. You imagine my heart does say that. There you go, you did. Can you imagine these sort of fuel declarations of love like this would add to your marriage? But as Rob's pointed out several times, you can't just muster this sort of thing up out of nowhere. We must look to the overflowing love of Jesus Christ that he pours out on us. And as we are filled with joy, filled with security, filled with um, wonder at being loved by Christ, we are then able to pour out that love on others, in particular our spouse. Fourth thing that Peter brings up in verse 9 of chapter 3 is how we ought to respond to insults and abuse. And the principle is, bless. Bless. In verse 9, Peter says, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Peter now is speaking about dealing with our enemies, those who do not know Christ. Um, when people who are hardened against Jesus deal harshly with us, he's saying we are to bless them instead of cursing them. The, the word reviling there, don't return reviling for reviling, it means insult or verbal abuse. Someone having a go at you verbally. So if we are to bless our enemies when they start speaking abusively toward us, how do you think you should act when fellow believers speak abusively towards us. How do you think you should act when our spouse speaks abusively towards us? You know, I said before we're on the same team, right? But the idea of two Christians being at war with each other is not at all foreign to Christians. It's not at all foreign to the Bible. That's why unity and forgiveness and conflict are addressed so much in the New Testament. And in a marriage, this gets exacerbated. It's very easy I, I know this because it happens to me all the time. It's very easy for us to fall into a situation where all of a sudden we're dealing with each other as enemies. So let's imagine that you're having your evening fight at home and you're feeling like your spouse is the height of wickedness. He or she is your mortal enemy in your mind at this point. The reasoning behind feeling that way is crystal clear in your mind. It's very obvious. There's no mistake. Yet your spouse is the devil incarnate. Right? I know you've never felt that way. Well, let's run with that for a moment. Let's just imagine that that is the case. Which is not. But let's imagine it's true. What does Peter say we are to do 
when we get in a verbal fight with the devil incarnate. And he says, do not return evil for evil or reviling, insults, verbal abuse for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. There you go. So what does that mean? What does it mean to bless? It's a word we use a lot, but we don't define it very much. It just sort of means a generally good thing, right? No, it means to literally speak well of someone. To put it differently, it means to speak in such a way that gives a benefit to the person you are speaking about. What that looks like is that when your husband pulls out his word weapons and starts hacking away at you, calling you names, a godly wife will, firstly, not return insults, will not start calling names back, and secondly, will speak well of her husband. So he's having a go at you, and you are saying, I love you and I respect you. I want to work through this with you. I don't see you as my enemy. I want to be on the same team. I want to talk as if we're on the same team. This is a God-glorifying way to respond because it's exactly the sort of thing that Jesus did. He looked at the people who nailed him on the cross and were mocking him and taunting him and he prayed for their forgiveness. He spoke words of benefit on them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now you might say, well, what am I meant to do? Sometimes my spouse needs correcting and I just need to do this to correct them. Well, Jesus speaks to wayward Christians as well. He does it all the time. You can read about it in the New Testament. Think of how he does it to the Corinthian church, for instance. In the first four verses, well, first sort of ten verses of 1 Corinthians, as Jesus is about to deal firmly and rebuke his church, his bride, this is what he says. He says, you are those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. He says, you're on my team. And then he says, I've chosen you. In verse 2 as well. He says, I've showered my love on you. In verse 5, he says, I will be with you until the end and nothing's going to change that. In verses 7 to 9. You can look it up later. This is how Jesus starts talking to his bride when he's about to rebuke her. Do we start hard conversations like that? Is our spouse always sure of our undying commitment to them and affection towards them? Now here's uh, John Broadus. John Broadus was uh, the second president of the Southern Baptist Seminary. Um, he, it seems by the, this letter, we don't have his wife's letter, but I've got his letter, but it seems that he offended his wife by planning a several month long business trip without talking to her. Sounds like something I might do. But listen to his letter and hear how his wife must have written to him. He says, I could not read your letter without distress, yet it is a comfort to see that though displeased with me, you love me. Please believe that though I am often very unwise, though I seem to you unkind, I do heartily and tenderly love you. There's a husband and a wife speaking blessing to one another, even in a conflict situation. The fifth 
thing that we see from 1 Peter 3 about communication, and this is a very short one, so I think it's pretty clear, is that we are to be truth tellers. In verse 10, Peter quotes Psalm 34, and he says, He who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Yet again, Jesus is our model here. Jesus is the truth, and every word he ever spoke was truthful. Satan, on the other hand, in contrast, is the father of lies. He deceived Adam and Eve through half-truths and blatant lies, and he has been deceiving people ever since. By God's grace, we want to be more like Jesus than Satan. So may our conversation be filled with honesty, because even small lies are displeasing to God, even small lies are dishonouring to God, but even small lies grow into big lies, grow into big problems. We must resist the temptation to deceive our spouse in small things, as that is not what Jesus is like. And our passage warns us that those who desire to love life and see good days must keep their lips from lies. The implication is that lives will destroy your life and bring about bad days, isn't it? So let us keep our lips from speaking deceit. Lastly, we are to seek peace. It's in verse 11. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Again, looking to Jesus as our example, he speaks peace to his enemies. He's willing to pay for peace and then he pursues his people in order to achieve peace. This is exactly the gospel. God seeks peace with his people. He sent Jesus who pays for the sins of his people. It costs him his life. And then Jesus sends out the church into the world to declare the peace that he is one. Repent and believe the gospel and you will be saved. You will have peace with God. Jesus is the exemplary peacemaker and he charges his people to be peacemakers like him. In Matthew 5, 9 he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Why? Because they are doing God-like activities. They are seeking peace just like he does. Now, I should mention that Jesus doesn't bring peace to all people everywhere. He offers terms of peace. He pursues peace even. He's willing to pay the price for peace. But for those who do not turn from their sin, for those who continue to reject him, he comes to bring a sword. This has consequences for our relationships, particularly our marriages. Um, if you happen to be married to an unbeliever, to someone who has not got peace with God, then you will find that tensions and fights arise that cannot be peacefully resolved. Jesus himself says this, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. 
The man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother, dad, husband or wife more than me is not worthy of me. And any who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. But if you're in that situation where it's impossible to be completely united in mind because you are serving different masters, it is your job to seek peace and holiness, as the writer to Hebrews says it, or as it's written in Romans 12:18, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. So how can we seek peace? How can we use our tongues to seek peace? Well, to understand that, I think we have to understand why we don't have peace. We don't have peace because of sin, because sin causes conflicts and places us against each other as enemies. We hurt each other, and that brings about tension and conflict. So, to seek peace, we must get good at dealing with sin. Dealing with sin is simple to explain, but very difficult to do. To seek peace after sin has brought about a fight. The person who has sinned must apologise. It's that simple. The apology should be honest and without excuse. The right way to apologise is to own my sin completely and say sorry for it. I am sorry. I called you names because I was angry at you and wanted to hurt you. It was wrong of me. Please forgive me. There's no excuse. There's no deflection. There's no weaseling your way out of it. It's total ownership and apology. But that's only half of peace-seeking. The other half is forgiveness. When your spouse seeks forgiveness, your Christian duty, it's not optional, your Christian duty is to forgive. How many times must you forgive, you might ask? He sins a lot against me. Well, Jesus told his disciples the answer to that question in Luke 17.4. Jesus says, if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you, and the implication is the same sin, seven times, and he comes and says, I repent, you shall forgive him. You, did it, you, just, you just did it five minutes ago. Is not an excuse for lack of forgiveness. The point is we must keep on forgiving. And to forgive means to forgive like God forgives. When we come to God owning our sin and asking for forgiveness, this is how He forgives us. Isaiah 43.25 I, even I, am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. I love that one. I will not remember your sins. Free and full forgiveness means not keeping a mental or physical record at all of sins that have been committed against you. You cannot, if you say, I forgive you, you cannot bring it up again. It's done. Is it how far done? It's as done as far as the east is from the west. So far does God remove our transgressions from us. It's an amazing truth that when God forgives us, He, he doesn't forget. He can't forget. He knows everything. But He chooses not to remember that's how we are to forgive. So, forgiveness is one aspect of seeking peace, apologies and, and forgiveness. Now, I think um, one of the hardest times to seek peace is when emotions run high and we start getting angry with one another. 
I'm sure this doesn't happen to you, but I will confess that I get angry with Shamira at times and our conversation turns into something louder and more aggressive and more heated than it should. So just allow me to speak for myself, to myself for a bit and maybe you, maybe you uh, have the same problem. Well, what do I do when, when there's an angry situation? When facing an angry spouse, I think it's good for me to remember that it takes two to tango. When you have a fire started, you can either throw fuel on it and it will leap up and grow, or you can starve it of fuel and it will wither and die. Have you ever considered that Jesus never unrighteously lost his temper in a fight with anyone? It just didn't happen. People will sure try to pick verbal fights with Jesus, but Jesus never sinned in his response. So the point is, Tom, I'm never in a position where I have to sin. I never have to keep escalating things if it gets out of control. And so two things I can remember to do. One is I can verbalise that I desire peace. This comes back to the overarching principle that I'd like you to take away from this talk. As a married couple, we are on the same team can be helpful to verbalise that when things start getting heated. I can say something like, I don't want to fight with you. I want to seek peace. It's simple. It's uh, helpful to remind myself that that's the situation I'm in. This can move on to more affirmations that help to establish where I see the relationship standing. I love you no matter what. We will get through this. I want to seek a solution. Saying things like this helps me to remind myself of these truths and to stop seeing my wife as the enemy. Another thing I can do is to look for somewhere to die. Once I've verbalised my commitment to my wife, I can then look for somewhere to die. As Christians, we are to be well practised in dying to ourselves. We are, by definition, people who say no to ourselves. We are people who give up on our own desires. We are people who own our sin. And sin is a great place to start. If, you're, if I'm in a yelling match, confessing how I have sinned often stops the fire growing. I could start with something really obvious and near to hand. I'm sorry for raising my voice. I shouldn't have done that. I was speaking in anger. Please forgive me. But then there are other ways, I, other ways I can die. Perhaps I can give up my own desires and insistence. Perhaps I'm fighting for something that isn't worth fighting for. Perhaps I'm fighting for something that is worth fighting for, but I need to wait on the Lord and talk my wife through the topic when we are calm and be gentle and slow and sympathetic with the fact that she doesn't agree with me at the moment so that we can move forward and at a later date with unity in mind. Jay Adams describes this process in this way. He asks, how can you get both a husband and a wife looking at the same problem rather than just pointing the finger at each other? So he says, uh, uh, one of our biggest problems in communication is that we just look at the problems in each other. He says, to be united, you have to be looking at the same problem. So how can you do that? Well, he says, one really easy way is for one person to start pointing the finger at themselves. Then at least you can agree. <laughs> And it actually doesn't matter who. It doesn't matter which one does it. At least you've found a point of agreement. But I'd like to challenge your husbands. Jesus is the initiator. Jesus is the one who pursues and gives up first. That should be our goal, primarily. 
And then you might find that once you've sorted that out and you've um, got some agreement, you can move forward in looking at the problem at hand once you've sorted this through godly communication and if appropriate repentance. So just in closing, consider that Jesus Christ is the one who speaks with life-giving words. When Jesus speaks, good things happen. When he speaks peace, sinners who are at war with God repent and are reconciled. When Jesus speaks forgiveness, sins are actually dealt with, never to surface again. When Jesus speaks life, dead souls are resurrected and start overflowing with life, with love. When Jesus speaks truth, the darkness disperses and the truth sets people free. We're all verbal sinners. Our tongues learn far more from the depths of hell than they do from the Word of God. We need forgiveness. We need the Holy Spirit. We need to have our tongues reformed so that we might speak with the life-giving words that Jesus Christ speaks with. He loves to conform us to His image. He speaks life. And He, by the grace of God, will work life-giving words in us. Words of unity, sympathy, love, blessing, truth, and peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we uh, confess to you that our tongues um, are destructive and so often we uh, let them start fires uh, in our relationships and in particular in our marriages. So we pray that you would be gracious and merciful to us. We pray that you would forgive us uh, for using these powerful things that you give us, our tongues and the words from our mouths. Uh, using them to, to hurt or to destroy rather than to build up and give life. Help us, Lord, to be united, to be sympathetic, to be loving, to bless, to speak truth, and to seek peace. We pray this in Jesus' name.